could escape. You thought you were safe. But the Jalo Chow Chow podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. Listen, here we are. I've had a couple, so I'm a little, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little shot out of a cannon, to be honest with you. I'm a little behind, but I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> and you know how you, you and uh, Eric used to, um, well, not Eric, but you used to drink J and B during the yeah. uh, original uh, podcasts. Yeah. Um, I don't drink J and B, but I'm very big on Campari. Did you ever have Campari? Yeah, it's bug guts, dude. It's uh, it's bug guts. That that I didn't hear. It's um, the co- co- cochineal beetle. Really? Yeah, smashed up. What gives okay, it? Now a... I have to I have to look that up now. Like you're, yeah. you're killing me, dude. All Campari right. was invented in 1860 by Giuseppe Campari. It was originally colored with carmine dye derived from crushed cochinal insects which gave the drink it's to stick wow look at you boom you're a fountain of knowledge <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> i thought i was bringing some new sh- fangled fancy shit to the discussion and you already know about it that's awesome do you do campari and soda i know i do I, I make uh negronis gin and campari and vermouth i fucking love it it's my favorite new drink oh yeah yeah but also, there is a bourbon variation. Actually, it's a rye variation called a Boulevardier. It's a, um, it's from uh, New Orleans, where instead of gin, you use rye, and it's the same other two ingredients. And it's a little bit heavier, but it's very good. Wow. What's it called? A Boulevardier. Boulevardier. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's something I'm going to have to look up now. <laughs> and it's Boulevard DA, like I-E-R is the last three letters, because it's French. You know, like Boulevard D'Air, like Derriere. Uh, that's how you spell it. Boulevard Le French sex murders. We come from guilt. So Wait, come on, in. give us give us a oh. give us a, a chow chow. Come chow on, chow, back. everybody! <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> episode one of the volume two of the Jallo Chow Chow podcast. Yeah, hey, it's Chris. And Cre- are you creep or are you Matt? I don't know. Um, I'm Matt. I guess we, we could we could. 
disrobe the pleasantries. Yeah, let's break that fourth wall down. Come on. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have a, a shit ton of things to say about this, uh, epi- this first episode. Um, that have happened in the last week since we recorded the last episode, which is really just you and me talking and, and talking I'm about wrestling speech. and and the Irishman and Netflix and and back it, in my day. It was like the Seinfeld of Jalo podcast. <laughs> it was. It was. It was. It was about, absolutely about nothing. Um, the first thing I wanted to bring up is that I wanted to say thank you to all of the people who have been um, just, uh, you know, dedicated to staying in this Jallo Chow Chow Facebook group. Um, it's been over a year since we really had any sort of activity in that group. And I went in um, after we had our podcast and I posted a couple of things and the response has been like crazy. Um and I'm, I'm, I've gotten three or four people, uh, you know, that have asked to subscribe since uh, we've had some activity. I've seen some of the some of the people that we know and love from you know years past um, participating in some of the discussion. And um, the one thing that I posted uh, about looking to resurrect the podcast and would like your feedback, um, we got a lot of comments on there. Most of the people said, stick with Jalo. We love Jalo. We love Euro Horror. Um, Mario Bava, Jess Franco, um, and Justin Kurzweil, who said, uh, continues. Yeah, he said, stick with Jolly. That's definitely your USP. And I had to look that up because uh, I didn't know what that meant, but it's um, unique selling proposition. So that's very cool. He, he knows that that's what we're good at. So um, anything you guys do, Giallo, Horror, Policio Tesco, Western, anything, um, it would be interesting uh, to hear your opinions on the death of Ennio Morricone, which we could talk about. Um, so that was really great. I really was uh, pleasantly surprised. And right after I did that, um, I realized that we still had some sort of an audience and I started to look and see what was, what else was out there because the Jalo, from what you were saying, creep, the last time we talked, um, you had found three or four, uh, new podcasts that were Jalo related. Other Jalo casts out there and there might've been a fourth, but it hadn't been updated in over a year. Okay. Oh, I kind of was like, eh, well, but yeah. And and then uh, kind of in contrast to that, most of the responses I was, was seeing on the group was that there isn't anything out there for Jallo. So I went and took a look. And um, the one thing I want to say is that there is... This is Chris and his amateur detective gear. Yeah. <laughs> There's... Um, there's a really, really outstanding podcast called The Fragments of Fear, um, and it's hosted by Rachel Nesbitt. Um, and the only reason I know Rachel's name is because I've watched... She's in our group, isn't she? She's in our group, yep. And she had a blog for a long time called Hypnotic Crescendos, 
um, and she just resurrected it very recently. Um, she, um, I think she got a gig uh, doing uh, writing for DVD re-releases or Blu-ray re-releases, um, and also was uh, interviewed for a couple of behind-the-scenes, you know, compilation documentaries that would go on to these Blu-rays as, um, uh, ex- you know, extra footage or uh, extras. Um, but um, I'm trying to remember here. Okay, so it's Jean. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to slaughter this guy's name. Luke Picard. Um, Peter uh, Jims Jimstad. He's from Sweden, and he's kind of the counter to her on the podcast. I listened to uh, so so they started this podcast back in October of last year. Um, they opened up with. Um, and, and, and they came out right away and said, look, we're not going to talk about the classic Jolly, the ones that everybody knows, like Solange and Bird and Don't Torture a Duckling. We want to talk about the ones that are obscure, um, the ones that people really should pay attention to that are flying under the radar. So the first one that I listened to that they did was Autopsy, which is a late 1975 Jalo. Uh, directed by Armando Crispino and starring uh, Mimsy Farner, uh, Farmer, who I hate. Exactly. Uh, I can't. I, I can't. Him. I can't stand Mimsy Farmer. Farmer. And so how do you like Four Flies? Well, because let's wait, let's wait, let's let's table that for another. Wait, discussion. was she also in Perfume of the Lady in Black? Oh, that one was terrible. God, I that. fucking hated that one. I was just like black <laughs> dress. Black. Yeah, it was awful. Um, right, we'll get we'll get ahead. to Argento. I think we'll get to Argento in a second because we've got a lot oh, to talk about. Yeah, that. we will, sir. But yeah. Autopsy is one of those films that I got a DVD from Anchor Bay in the early 2000s or late 90s, whenever that came out. And I had no idea what Jalo was. I just thought it was a horror film. And I watched it, and I really wasn't turned on by it. And then when I did it for the Jalo score... I hated it. There was something about that movie that didn't we do it for the podcast? No, we never did all we never did autopsy. I don't think we did. Maybe we did. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> I don't even know anymore. Mm, okay. But there was something about autopsy, and it's really funny because the film is about sunspots and people being kind of uh hypnotized by this weird phenomenon of 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 flares that come off the sun that drive them to suicide. And I have a tendency to get um, motion sickness uh, when I'm in a car, and especially when it's like hot outside, I get nauseous. And that movie made me feel that way because it was there was such an emphasis on the sun and the daylight and stuff. And so what I'm trying to say is... Um, Rachel's uh, the the fragments of fear podcast really made they made a case that autopsy is a really good film and deserves a second look. So uh, have they done but Prince on the Moon? No, no. But they did Lindsay's second in the three erotic thriller trilogy called So Sweet So So Perverse, um, which we're going to have to talk about in a little bit because. We had already been through this once, and I got totally confused again listen, listening 
to Umberto Lenzi's explanation as to why everything happened the way it did with those movies. Right. So now I'm just as confused as I was the first time. And Correct. if you look back at those episodes you found, you'll find an episode where you explain it to me. Yep. And I think everything's okay. And then I just got <laughs> confused again. <laughs> so. And you know what? What what I discovered from the documentaries that we're going to cover on tonight's episode is that I was wrong about what happened with orgasmo slash paranoia. Well, then you told me the wrong shit in the first place. So everything's well, see, okay. So here's what I thought. Okay, and we're we're di- we're, we're diverting into a different topic, but. Here's what I thought. I thought that they wanted to name the film Orgasmo in Italy, right? And when they took it to the United States, they called it Paranoia because Orgasmo was too sexy of a title. Okay? Yeah. But that's not what happened. No. If you if you read if you go to the second documentary that we're we're covering tonight, Lindsay was like, "Look, we wanted to call the film Paranoia, but in Italy, Anything with an oya on the end of it sounds like boring. It translates into the word boring in Italian. And so the producers in Italy, they didn't want to call it paranoia because they didn't want anybody to have any context of, oh, this movie's title is synonymous with boring and we not, we're not going to go see it. So instead, they called it Orgasmo. And that was the title in Italy, but Lindsay wanted to call it Paranoia. And it was the uh, the un- the U.S. distributors and the American audiences that were okay with the idea of calling it paranoia, and that was what I learned. I was gonna I was gonna reveal this when we talked about the documentaries, but, but you brought it up. So made another movie in Italy called Paranoia, right? So yes. Yeah, so then the the next movie that um, that Lindsay made with Carol Baker and Jean Sorel was called Paranoia in Italy. But they called it a quiet place to kill in America. But then there's another one called a quiet place to die. There's another one called not a quiet place to kill, but a <laughs> something else place to kill. Yeah. Another adjective. It's just like an ideal place to kill. That's what it was called. Oh. But, it, but it was also called Dirty Pictures. Yeah. And then in the middle of all that, he made another one called So Sweet, So Perverse that stars um, this French actor, the same guy who's in uh, uh, Death Laid an Egg. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? I do. So um, anyway, I think the point I was trying to make was that um, for, the, for, for everybody out there who's listening, go check out Fragments of Fear. It's really, really well done. Um, these the two the two of them Rachel and uh, and Peter um, I'm sorry Peter if I if I'm if I'm slaughtering your name I think it's Peter um, they really know their stuff um, they they know a lot about the backstories they know a lot about the actors and it's not as tongue in cheek as our discussion is where we kind of like make fun of stuff as we go along but this isn't to say that their podcast is completely dry and not without humor i'm what what i'm really impressed by is that when i'm listening to the to their podcast and i've, I've gone through three episodes now um it doesn't sound scripted but at the same time it's not just kind of like 
uh, impromptu off the cuff discussion. It's a little bit of both and it's, it's really well produced. So again, um, fragments of fear, check it out. I don't want to pull people away from listening to us, but it's a different, you know, it's definitely a different experience. Did you coin the term proto-jally? No, 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 definitely not. I heard somebody say it somewhere. Was it me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it might have been you. Yeah, absolutely. No, it wasn't me. Well, like, it's like, what's the difference between neo like, a, you know, neo-jalo, right? Um, like, Argento's Tenebrae it's... is probably considered the first neo-jalo, right? I hope not. No, it definitely is because it's it's it completely it's completely different than anything that came before it, and no one else That's was doing giallo at the time, right? Well, so, didn't Bava do um, that one that wasn't a very good one? The Sun Bava, Blade. Oh, Lamberto. Yeah, Blade of. Blade in the dark. Blade in the dark. Yeah, That's, Dude, more, of a, that's really... more of a slasher, definitely. But like, really, what's the difference when it comes down to it? Well, in a slasher, I think that the very dis- the distinction between slasher and giallo is that um, no one really cares who the murderer is in a slasher. So, like, the identity isn't really important. We're going to have to watch that movie again because I really felt, or maybe I should just listen to the podcast if you found all the podcasts. Um, that the we one did for Blade we- in the Dark, it, you mean? Yeah, because, like, I really felt like it was just a love letter to daddy. So now Blade in the Dark came out in 1983 and I think Tenebrae was 81. So, um, thought it was 82. You might be right. But anyway, moving on. um, Yeah. We're splitting hairs here. We're definitely splitting hairs. I did want to kind of talk about, um, Jalo score and, um, what happened to Jalo score and it's really interesting because one of the things that I've realized in going back through the 71 episodes that we did up to this is that um, as somebody who's interested in this, these types of films, you come into it with a certain level of knowledge. And as you talk about it and as you spend more time with it, your knowledge level goes up. And yeah. some of the things that you thought you knew or thought that you were confident in understanding back in the beginning are completely blown away as you continue to watch more and more movies. And I started thinking about this and you can tell me what you think. And the people on the group can tell me what they think. Um, I, I think that Jalo score was a cool idea, but I don't know if it's ultimately a flawed concept. Because and, and I don't want to talk about the fact that you know your your accusation, Matt, <laughs> is that everything that I that I used to create the Jalo score was informed by Argento, Argento. which it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. It's not. It's not. However, like I said, I think in the beginning, like I went back and listened to episode six. We did the case of the bloody iris, and you guys had me on yeah. as a guest, yeah. and we talked about Jalo score, and I talked about how. I was looking for. I was looking to build a website and do something with Jalo because it was my favorite, you know, 
subgenre of film, but I wanted a gimmick, and I came up with this idea for the gimmick and scoring up these uh, these webs the, these films. Yes, please. Um, so, and you guys loved it. You loved how math mathy it was. You know, there should be a Jalo score book, right? And it would take two seconds to build an ebook for that, and we're gonna do it. <laughs> okay. Okay, so done. Sorted. Okay. The other thing that was good was once Jalo Chow Chow stopped, I and I started up a Jalo Score podcast, which only had two episodes. I archived every single episode that we did and put it on my site. So I managed to find them. Um, I don't have them all, unfortunately. And you're going to be really disappointed because one of the ones that I cannot find is Eyeball. And so obviously we need to cover Eyeball again because we don't have the original version of Eyeball. Um, I've got uh, episode one through episode 42 i downloaded them i got them for posterity and then i also have episodes 68 through 71 which includes the commentary that we did for um top sensation and we did commentary for night evelyn came out of the grave with eric nice now between 68 and 42 there are video files on creeperson cast that we can download so we can get those so It's going to take a, a little bit of effort, but I'm planning on trying to get all the old episodes back up onto the podcast channel so that people who are interested in hearing them um, can get them. And like what you're saying about when you're just a fan of something and you first start talking about it and you're different than you are later. Cause like, if you listen to those first five episodes, it was almost like I was the devil's advocate. Like I'm going to talk shit on every single one of these movies <laughs> and it's Eric's job to make them sound good. <laughs> you know and like and i'm like i like the phones they used yeah and lady had a nice dress but that movie was shit yeah and yeah, i was yeah. getting all mad and stuff yeah and um but then like once you're doing it over and over again like because i remember bird i gave a huge fuck you to because of the lapse of logic that's in there right and right. then i did the same thing with bay of blood but now, <laughs> and then you realize that there's no logic in any of them so for the most part but <laughs> like, bay of blood in particular has such a different place in my heart now than it did yeah you know and like bird i still think bird is excellent okay yeah. but um all of those early like i think once we hit um, uh, case of the bloody iris. That was me turning it all around, because that's probably like, arguably like my favorite Jalo of all time. Yeah, it's a good but one. But then, if I remember correctly, we went right into a couple of stinkers, like 
lizard in a woman's skin. <laughs> I was like, wait, we there's some problems here that we need to talk about. But no, uh, but like, <laughs> as it went on, like you do, you get more knowledgeable about everything you're doing as you're studying it for a longer period of time. So yeah, that, that makes total sense. Yeah. And, and, and you, and you think about the films that you thought were crap and you change your mind about some of them. And then you think about the ones that you put really high up on a pedestal and you change your mind about those too. Nope. You um, don't. You don't? No. Nope. Eyeball and strip nude are still oh, the best. Yeah, true. Okay. <laughs> no, I understand. Um, but yeah, the crap movies you put up on a pedestal, you could definitely change your mind about. Well, I'm just going to ignore that comment. Um, it was so annoying when we would do the top ten list and you and Eric would like basically pick like the same movies and then like i had like <laughs> my movie. i'm like what the fuck is happening right now right like, okay and and there's something to be said for the fact that if you come into this subgenre feloni genre whatever you want to call it if you come into this as a newbie in you know the the in, in the new millennium in the 21st century you're going to be told which of these films are the best ones. Yeah. Because so many people already have opinions about them. And so everyone's going to tell you that Don't Torture a Duckling is one of the best ones. And Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward is one of the best. And all of Argento stuff is amazing. And, and so on and so on and so on. And it's really hard to break away from that. Because partly you say, well, if the majority of these people think that these are the ones that rise to the top, then they must be right. Um, but on the other hand, you're kind of assuming something or you're just, you're, you're, you're basically saying, look, these people have thought about these films a lot more than I have, so I'm going to trust their judgment, you know? Um, but, you know, really... It, it, it's it's a it, it, these these films these giallo films that we've been talking about for the last five years or so they continue to to entertain us they continue to put us in a position where we're discovering new stuff yeah and it's really awesome I mean wh it whatever, really... however whatever you think about certain ones or you know which whichever ones are on your top ten or not top ten doesn't really matter because every time you watch one of these. And I'm talking specifically about the ones between the between the 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 years of say seventy and seventy five because those are the those are the ones that really fit the mold. Um, you, you get a certain you get a certain style and a certain kind of theme and a certain feel to these things. But it and, really depends on what your taste is because, for instance, like. Um, I know you liked it, and I know Eric loved it, but um, House of Laughing Windows, you know, like, that, I didn't really like that that much, because that was out in the country. Like, Don't Torture a Duckling is kind of rule. Yes. Uh, and I'm not a fan of those. I like the city, like, the, the fashion models yep. doing all their stuff. You know, that's like, 
And I don't like it when they go into the house. Like, even um, your, oh, your vice is a locked room. Like, that it's has a little rural. Yeah. moments of, like, hip, modern crap. But it's the backdrop of it is like an old, crusty manor. Yeah. You know? And so for me, like, that's not one of my favorites because it doesn't have the same flair that, like, a um, Five Dolls for an August Moon or um, uh, Case of the Bloody Iris or Eyeball or um, Strip Nude has. You right. know, like, it's, and then even Black Belly of a Tarantula. Black Belly of a Tarantula not just has the best locations, it has the best set pieces. Like, the telephones in that movie are amazing. Right. The negligees in that movie are amazing. The yep. wallpaper in that movie is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> everything in that movie is just amazing. So it yep. just depends on what you dig. You know, because I know a lot of people would really put like even um solange like up really high and i agree it's a really good movie but it's not one of my favorites because it doesn't have all the quirky shit that i like yeah 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 absolutely and i think that you know um maybe there's something to be said for judging a film on two different merits or two for two different scales like um, Solange and Who Saw Her Die, um, for example, yeah. are a couple of films that are definitely don't have that tongue in cheek kind of thing going on. They don't have that sleazy. Well, they have the sleazy. The, uh, Solange has the sleazy thing, but it's all very serious. Um, Is Who Saw Her Die the one in um, the Venice canals? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And but the thing about Solange was it was a real commentary about um, girls turning into women and um, the church and sexual um, liberation and that whole thing. Like some of these Jalo, Jali, some of them really do a little bit more than just titillate. They 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 take some of these themes and some of these cultural contexts. And bring them up to life. Like, Don't Torture a Duckling, what I thought, one of the things I like about Don't Torture a Duckling is that it takes the the modernized um, culture and marries it with this rural, backwoods kind of mentality. And and, and it's it's the very opening scene where you see this snake-like looking highway um, in the middle of this rural environment, and then you've got this woman who's interested in witchcraft, um, and meanwhile you've got this guy who's taking photos for a magazine, and you've got this woman, and the two of them are trying to solve the murder. One of the things I thought was interesting about one of the two documentaries that we watched this week was that they, they said how Fulci made a movie where the, the good guys were the um the salacious uh paparazzi um the uh black magic witchcraft woman and the drug addict whore they were the they were the heroes and the priest not to have spoilers but the priest who's supposed to be traditionally conventionally the good guy was the bad guy 
And yeah. that's an interesting kind of take. I mean, when you watch Don't Torture Duckling, you might not get all of that out of that. You might just watch it for the sake of it being a murder mystery. But um, I think the reason why a movie like Don't Torture Duckling kind of gets separated from the group of all the other ones is because people recognize that Fulci was trying to make those statements in his movie. And whether or not it was lost on the crowd or whether or not, you know, Fulci kind of didn't really need to do that to make a successful movie is kind of beyond the point at this point, because you're talking about yeah. 60, 70 years later. And, you know, you like $5 for an August moon, but that's very much a kind of everybody's in one house. There's one location. It's more but like an Agatha Christie thing than anything it else. Is. But the house that they're in is like the coolest house that ever was born. It's the coolest you know? house ever. <laughs> it's like so fucking amazing. I would love to die in that house. Oh, but Absolutely. another thing I was going to say too, like I think two movies that are really good that merged the urban and the rural are Torso and um, I think it was Death Walks in High Heels or Death Stalks in High Heels. Was that the one where they went out to the country towards the end and there was like the fisherman guy who yep. was every movie we had ever seen? Yep. Um, and I actually watched that very, very recently. Um, and that is a very, we talked about this when we did it back in the, in volume one. Um, the cool part about death walks on high heels is that Susan Scott's character who used to, who did you refer to her as? Um, I think it was butthole face, butthole face, right? <laughs> <laughs> This is why we offer an alternative to Fragments of the Fear, a Fragments of Fear podcast, because of Butthole Face. I've um, honestly grown on Butthole Face a great deal. <laughs> so. but, but, but she's in, I don't know which documentary I saw of her. With She looks completely different now. She's very, very old yeah. and doesn't look anything like that anymore. Um, but anyway, the cool thing about... Um, Death Walks on High Heels is that Susan Scott's character is really front and center up until the point where she gets murdered halfway through the film. And it's very much like Psycho where they, you know, Marion Crane, everybody's, you're, you've emotionally invested in Marion Crane in Psycho all the way through. And then she gets killed in the shower and then you're like, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? She's dead. You know, yeah. and now uh, uh, I need to find somebody else to get behind. And in Psycho, it's Norman Bates. But in, um, in Death Walks on High Heels, yes. They start out in France. Um, Susan Scott's character is a stripper, and her boyfriend is French, and they have this whole thing, and their killer comes to visit her, and then she decides she's going to escape because she's afraid. And yeah. she leaves with uh, you know, the character who's English, and they go to the English countryside. So um, that is a very enjoyable film because there's just so much going on there's so many characters and there's a lot of humor injected into that film yeah um with like the british um police force and that that little um that little gag that they keep doing throughout the film i don't know if you remember it but every time the inspector went to take a sip of his coffee somebody would interrupt him yeah and throughout the entire movie he never got a single sip of coffee it was like <laughs> hilarious <laughs> And then at one point, the guy throws up out the window and it lands on, on the cop's head. And uh, in, in England, yeah. they have those giant fucking hats, yeah. those really tall hats. So anyway, 
Um, but just just to circle back to to the Jallo score and put a period at the end of that sentence, I'm very very embarrassed right now, um, and there's nothing I can do about it. Someone bought JalloScore.com, the domain, and if you go there now, you'll see Filipino porn. I'm sorry, dude. I'm not you, sure if I do you want, want the URL back. I don't want my legacy. Did you take? Did you buy it? <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. I knew it was you. Oh, one other thing I wanted to talk about real quick was I got my Cinemageddon account back i'm very excited about it i I unfortunately have no invites so don't spam me for invites because i can't get them but basically for those of you who don't know cinemageddon is a private BitTorrent tracker that has among other things an entire giallo project and if i go there right now i can tell you that they've updated it within the last year or so and apparently they're using Troy's, Troy Howarth's two books to make a complete catalog of Jalo. And they have, I, I counted, it's like, it's close to 300 films from 1963 all the way up to 1990. So there is a lot of content on this website. A long time ago, there was a couple of video services, video dubbing services. One of them called one of them was called Revok, R E V O K. The other one was called uh, Video Search of Miami, V S O M. I don't know if you've ever heard of either of those, um, but they actually, made Video Search of Miami. I actually do remember. They, they made they made their money on the fact that they would sell, they would obtain copies of films from Europe or Japan, or China, or wherever, Russia, and they would ensure that those films had never been, le- been released in that specific version in the United States. And as long as that fell under that particular definition of free market, or whatever you want to call it, they were able to dub those videos onto discs, or VHS in the beginning, and eventually it was DVD, and sell them, and they, it wasn't illegal. So, I think that's where the whole cannibal holocaust being public domain comes into it. Mm. Because over the years in all the countries, there have been many, many edits of that film. Many cuts of that movie. Yeah. Um, and technically, um, cannibal holocaust is public domain. But I know there are companies out here who have the rights to put the movie out. So if you're going to get that version or some other version, who knows? Mm, Okay. Because I think that was the movie I was actually looking into when I came across that Miami place. That, that, That was the place that I got my very first copy of Four Flies on Grey Velvet because that was the elusive Argento film. I think one of the major studios had rights to that film and they were holding on to them for some stupid reason.
But anyway, moving right along, we were talking about doing top three as a feature of our podcast. And I don't know if you're ready to do one. No, but, like um, I was thinking like just something that could be something that we can talk about that isn't necessarily related to anything other than us. Just so people could get to know us better, like the people who listen to the show and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so, um, my top three would be my top three L.A. punk albums. Your top three L.A. punk albums? Yeah. Um, I'll do it really quick. Number three would be um, Circle Jerks Group Sex. Okay, It was awesome. the first big um, hardcore punk album to come out of L.A. because... Um, there was this period before that when the, the LA punk scene was not necessarily just a minute and a half songs and people screaming and hardcore had not yet turned into hardcore metal, which is still like 10 years away from that album. Right. So this like weird little microcosm that kind of spread all over the country um, but like Circle Jerks Group Sex, I think is the like prime example of that. And that My album, se- and that album from, and I don't, I'm not intimately familiar with the Group Sex album, but I've listened to it a bunch of times. And oh. what's great about that album is it's 15 minutes long, and all the songs are about a minute or less. And th- it opens up with that song about deny everything. Yeah. which is 25 seconds long. Oh, and it's so one of the good. best punk best punk rock songs ever written. It's so I'm really, I'm right up there with you. Really good. Um then number 2 I think would be Black Flags My War. Okay. Now this is with Rollins on it. Now a yep. lot of um arguments would be here like I don't have the first 4 years on here which were all of Black Flag's EPs and um, stuff like that. But that was a collection, so I'm not going to count that as an album. And a lot of people, when they talk about Rollins, they immediately go to Damaged, which was the first Rollins vocaled album. But a lot of that stuff was just reworked stuff from the older singers. Yep. But My War, the first side of My War is just amazing punk. And then the second side of my war to me is like the precursor to what doom metal would become. Yeah. Like absolutely. It's, it's three songs that last like a fucking half hour and it's just slow and screamy and it's, Oh, it's so good. I couldn't, it's, I it's, couldn't agree with your assessment of, Side B of my war being a precursor to doom metal. I couldn't agree with that more. Like that is such an, so on, it's such a, it's such an amazingly accurate depiction of side B because that's a sky pie five right there. Is yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is. That's a sky pie five. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you a story about my war. Um, I was riding in my mom's car. I think she had a duster. It was a 70s duster. Um, of course, it was a 70s duster in the 80s. But um, And for some reason, we were going through the dial, 
and looking for stuff on the radio. And we landed on some college radio station and they were playing my one of the one of the songs from My War. It probably was My War. And I listened to this and I said, This is the most unique, objectionable, and horrible and fantastic thing I've ever heard. Because so um, it didn't sound like anything else. And like Greg Ginn, I'm I'm convinced is a guitar genius because of the way that he plays. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. And and I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for this album right now. And those three songs on side B are only six minutes long. But to me, they felt like, like you said, like an hour piece. Yeah. Uh, because it's they're really just, slow. Amazing. Yeah. I read this interview where Henry Rollins said the only time they ever played those songs live was they were doing a house party. And the only songs they played were those three songs. And he's like, and we played them longer than we were supposed to. And it was like an hour set. <laughs> Everyone was like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, if I could have been there, that would have been like just oh amazing. That yeah, is awesome. Just, that's so good. And like And, and Bill Stevenson track, is one of the best punk drummers on the planet. Yeah. You know, he played for the Descendants and all mm -hmm. and all those bands. Oh my god. And um so number like when 30. you say Great Gig's a genius, I think he's more of like an idiot savant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You right, know, exactly. Like when he's playing <laughs> stuff, like half the notes he hits, you're sitting there going, he shouldn't have done that. Or accidents. He, he should not have done that. But Absolutely. it sounds it sounds exactly how it should sound. It's well, it was like Miles bizarre. Davis used to say, like, if you play a wrong note, just play it again with emphasis, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, he does that. <laughs> he does that a lot. But have you ever okay. heard um, the Black Frag album called The Process of Weeding Out, which is all yeah. instrumental? Yep. Or um, the first half of Family Man? Yep. Which is, because uh, yeah. I, think, I think Family Man is half instrumental and half spoken word or something like yeah. that. Yeah. That's good and stuff, man. I was listening to Gone. I don't know if you ever listened yeah. to that. that was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, is other stuff. But yeah, it's just, he's definitely an acquired taste. But once you get it yeah it's like hard to listen to anything else you're just like oh <laughs> my God, i agree i agree <laughs> uh, but so my number one would be x's los angeles top to bottom a wonderful beautiful amazing album that is so just not nostalgic, but it's just like, it's like a storybook of LA at that period in time. Okay. And like, yeah, I want to throw the first four years in here. Yeah. I want to throw um, the germs MIA in here. But um, if we're just talking like albums, those three albums, I think really solidify the LA punk scene in the early eighties. Like, I, and I, I unfortunately can't comment on that at all. I've never listened to X. I've never listened to that album. Dude, um, you have to write a note to yourself right now to listen to Los Angeles and even Wild Gift. Like, if you just, like, let Los Angeles, the whole album, play into Wild Gift, yeah, boom. I got it. Yeah. And they just put out two new albums this year, which is wow. bizarre. But... <laughs> 
we won't talk about that. We won't talk about that. Okay, so that was my top three. So everyone go listen to that. So really, the meat and potatoes of this episode is we decided that we were going to take a look at these two um, relatively new documentaries that were put out uh, on the Jalo genre. One of them is called um, All the Colors of Jalo. Do you or know the all, year of that? No, it's All the Colors of Yellow, right? No, it's All the Colors of Jalo. Oh, All the Colors of Jalo, and the other one is called Yellow Fever. Yeah. That's what it is. Okay, so Yellow Fever came out first in um in 2016 and okay. it was included in the blu-ray release of tenebrae which i actually have it is it is mostly in english and yeah. you know they do have a few uh people that they interview in the film that only speak italian specifically uh argento's in it Luigi Luigi Cozy is in it. Uh, Ruggiero Dionato, the guy who directed Cannibal Holocaust, is in Diodato. it. Diodato. Diodato. And Lenzi is in it. And I'm trying to think if anybody else is in it that's Italian. Um, is that one Susan Scott's in? No, I didn't see Susan Scott. I saw her in the other one. Okay. So the second documentary that we that we watched uh, for the show was called all the colors of Jalo. And that one is a hundred percent in Italian. So it, that one took a little bit more effort from, from me specifically because I had to read the subtitles and pay attention. Um, but uh, I don't know. Let, I'll Honestly, throw it to you. Creep. T- t- tell me what you, what you got out of these. I think a lot of the subtitles and all the colors of Jalo I think a lot of them might be a little off. And so I was wondering if Al's still listening and Al's seen this, like they, the way they use the term nonlinear storytelling and then the examples they give to me, don't seem like they fit. Okay. If you know what I mean. And so I'm trying to figure out if they were referring to or trying to say something else because it didn't really gel. The other thing is there were a few times they were throwing around um, money figures in it that I don't know if they were talking Lear or American dollars. They're definitely talking Lira. And and it's interesting that you bring that up because... um, if you look at, if you listen to um, the Fragments of Fear podcast, they talk about the box office uh, take for some of these movies, and if you hear them say something like five hundred million, you know, it's certainly not dollars, right? Yeah. Um, because five hundred million is like Avatar money. Yeah. Spider Man money, right? Yeah. So it, it's definitely lira. Um, so that one, I that one, I'm pretty confident in. But one of the things that's interesting to do is watch a Jalo with 
the English soundtrack, but also with the English subtitles on, and you'll notice that they don't necessarily oh, always match. No, they, yeah, that's always a funny thing. It's funny um, how they did that. I think when we watched Slaughter Hotel, it was like <laughs> two completely different movies. I'm like, what the fuck is happening here? <laughs> um, but anyway, so who would think that they would spend any amount of time <laughs> adding quality to that film? Jesus Christ. And, so, it, and that uh, film is so great because Rosalba Neri has a bare midriff out. <coughs> that's the only reason why I like that movie. I mean, there's lots of other stupid reasons to like it, but that's my number one reason. Yeah. Um, and, and what's his name is in it? The, um, the Bos- German guy. Boskinski. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Yellow Fever, I watched uh, it twice. Yeah. And they start off really good. They start off with the origins of the genre. They talk about the Mondadori um, books. They talk about Edgar Wallace. They talk about the Creamies and Agatha Christie and, and so on. They talk about how the girl who knew too much was the invention of some of the tropes. Blood and Black Lace uh, was kind of like the, the, the next logical step in, in the genre. And then they talked about how Argento took both of those films and... And became a small god. Yeah, and basically because of the fact that his film made so much money compared to the other ones... See, now this is where I throw in my foot. Because if you watch Yellow Fever, Argento's talking, oh yeah, it was such a success, it was huge. We were number one at the box office for two weeks in the u.s which right. i am going to call <laughs> we should have to look that one up <laughs> yeah that's something that has to be looked up because i had never heard that um but then in all the colors of jolly Maybe somebody told him that yeah and all the colors of jolly they were saying nobody liked it um we screamed it and nobody came and we didn't know what we were going to do. And I thought I, my wife... I actually really enjoyed Argento's um, thoughts and comments about his film in the All the Colors of the Giallo. Yeah. I felt him... I felt that in that documentary, he was being a lot more kind of honest. Human. And yeah. And it was really interesting because he was like, look, I made this film. And the producer was like, this is shit. Um, we're not going to do anything with it. And then all of a sudden, you know, for one reason or another, they stuck with it and then audiences really liked it. And he was like, wow, I was really surprised and pleasantly surprised that how people liked it Yeah. in the yellow, in the yellow fever documentary, he basically said, I I'm better than Bava. Um, uh, as, as great as Bava is, I think the, you know, I think my stories are a little bit better. You know, he basically, you know. Dude, I was, like, biting my tongue. Yeah. I'm, like, wanting to scream at the screen. And then the funniest thing is, neither of those movies are like, oh, what did you do between Four Flies and Deep Red? No, no. Nobody asks him that. Uh, oh, oh, you didn't have, like, a huge bomb? No, uh, no one no just, one will talk to him about Oh, okay, that. okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was just like, I was like, come on, dude. Like. But I, I thought um, if we if because we're, we're probably going to jump back and forth. But all the colors of the Jalo. One of the things I liked about it was they talked about how the guy who did um, the 120 Days of Sodom. What mm-hmm. the hell was his name? Uh, Pasolini or something. Mm-hmm. 
how he was influential in the fact that he opened up all of the kind of uh, avenues. Uh, the av- yeah, no pun intended. He opened up all of the avenues for people to do stuff that the censors were generally, you know, kind of not really interested in. Yeah. Um, and there was there was one movie. I'm trying to remember uh, who was talking about it. I think it was in the second, uh, in this again in the second documentary. It, 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 to to if I'm just jumping ahead and spoiling. The all the colors of the Jalo documentary, I think, is a thousand is times better. better than the other one. Way, um, but and, I will say, the, Yellow Fever has a way higher production value. It has a better production value, and obviously, it's easier to watch because some of the interviews are in English. But somebody was talking about how they added um, some additional Thanks, scenes of sex that they knew were automatically going to get cut. Yeah, but they use that as a way of kind that was of Martino misdirection. I heard that way back in the day too. Yeah. That whenever they wanted to have some like kind of smoky scenes and stuff, that they would go farther, knowing that they would get cut, but they would leave the stuff that they originally wanted to have in the movie in the first place. Now this brings us to the next point: how far was too far? Like, what the fuck were they shooting? Because um, George Hilton, who also has passed since we stopped doing the show, um, he was talking about, and you were talking about, like, a great story about Edwidge and Martino's brother, which we'll get to in a minute. But he was saying that they used to have to wear tape on their bits. Yes. and Yeah, that was interesting. I've seen the like what the girls use like that tape stuff. Yeah. But I've never seen a guy tape nothing. Like yeah, most ju- it's usually like a <laughs> nylon with a rubber band on it. <clears throat> um but th- but and that's so interesting like I probably didn't want to know this but you know I don't remember how many different films George Hilton and the Edwidge were in together where they were lovers, but he basically was saying in the documentary that he felt like she was a sister to him. And when they did the love scenes, they tried their best, but it was a little awkward and they had to put tape on their genitals. Um, but I think it was um, either Sergio or Sergio's brother who was in love with Edward. Yeah, it was um, Lumberto. Is that his name? Lumberto Martino, um, the producer Not- guy. But uh, it was Luci- oh, Luciano. Luciano is this Luciano, and he's like, "Hey, um, I need you to hook me up with that chick, and I'll put you in my next movie." And he's <laughs> right. like, "Okay, like that's a yeah. totally normal thing to do." That like, was awesome. Order out <laughs> so he could be in the movie, and like no one had any problems with that. Yeah, like, he that's... knew that he knew that George could get him in, and he was like, "All right, George." He, and, and according to Wikipedia, he was married to Edwidge. Um, from 71 to 79. So he, dude, he got her in her best years. <laughs> I was just going to say that, dude. Talk about the prime. But, you know, uh, we never talked about Luciano Mar- Martino before. And again, going back to the point deal. I made earlier about how you continue to learn stuff about this genre as you go along. Um, as much as Salvatore Argento was a good producer for Argento, 
Luciano Martino was the producer for Sergio. Yeah. And he also produced what people consider to be one of the most important um, Jolly called The Sweet Body of Deborah, um, which is one of the last ones we covered on volume one. Yeah. Um, and if you go back, I'm, I remember us talking about that film and going back and, and saying, you know, this really feels like a Sergio Martino film. Like, not only does it have George Hilton and, you know, you've got Carol Baker instead of Edwidge, but it still kind of has that same um, feel to it. Like, the story feels that way and, the, and the, the, you know. Um, so, and that's something that um, I didn't realize that he had, uh, he had a hand in. And apparently he also had something to do with Lindsay's So Sweet, So Perverse. As a producer, yeah. So I mean, like, if you look at his producing credits, he's got 133 films under uh -huh. his belt as a producer. So yeah, the Sweet Body of Deborah, for sure. Um, I'm looking for so sweet. Yeah, so sweet, so perverse is definitely in there. Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, Case you of the Scorpion's Tale, All the Colors of the Dark. So anyway, if we go back to Yellow Fever. There are several English-speaking people who are commentating on the giallo. One of them is Mikhail Coven, who we've talked about before, who wrote that La Dolce Morte book. Um, but there's a few others. Alan Jones yeah. is in there. He's a big Argento guy. Fucking um, Kim Newman's in that shit. Who's that? Kim Newman? The writer? She? Dude. Is she the one um, with him. the purple hair? Him. It's a him. Oh, oh, oh! I'm sorry. Which one is he in the in the uh, in the documentary? He's got a weird, creepy mustache and glasses. It's not the guy with the cowboy hat that looks like he's. No, that's the director. Not taking a breath. The, he's the director of the movie that was supposed to be the Island of Doctor Moreau, and that never happened. Oh, okay. Did happen. He did that movie, the Western with the robots. Hardware. He did hardware. So the first guy they were talking to in all the colors, um, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember. He's a screenwriter, but I can't remember what his name was. But the thing that cracked me up is that he was saying that like the most important thing is that these movies had to make logical sense. And I was yeah. like, I was I, like, I, I, Gestaldi. Yeah. You talking about Gestaldi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm like. Most of them don't make logical sense. But when he was saying that, again, this could be a translation issue. I think he was talking about not supernatural. Yes. Like, there was, there couldn't be any supernatural. Like, you could be led to believe that it could be. But at the well, end he, of the day, it's like a Scooby-Doo episode. Yeah, he was talking about... Um, yeah, no, I agree. I think that... One of the things that I got from what he was trying to say, and again, it was lost, it might have been lost in translation, but um, he was saying something about um, that if the director or the screenwriter cheats in some way um, to tell the story in a way that doesn't, is not logically kind of um, determinated. Determinated is not even a word. I've had too many beers. <laughs> if, the end, if the end result, it, you can't kind of um, connect the dots in some sort of logical way, then the director has cheated. And 
the the easiest way to cheat in a in a in a film where there's murders or a mystery is to introduce the supernatural aspect, right? Yeah. So I think that's what he was saying. But um, what's interesting is I think further down in that documentary, somebody also said that Castaldi wasn't a very good writer. So. Like, they all talk shit about each other. Yeah, and, like, the fucking craziest shit was that recording they had of Fulci just tearing Argento in the asshole. Oh, my God. (laughs) That That is (laughs) worth the price of admission, dude. Just that. (laughs) I was like, holy shit. I agree. That That was was really funny. Yeah. So, if you don't want to watch this for anything else, watch it just for that. Because that was... That was some prime shit right there. Yeah, I think, you know, when they made the film, um, um, Fulci had already died, but they must have had some sort of interview with him from from when he was still alive, obviously. And they just, they, just, they just played the tape, and it was basically just him talking about how Argento, um, not necessarily as a hack, they, he, he didn't go as extreme as you do. Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. With Argento. He said a lot of bad things. <laughs> See, here's the thing with Argento. It's not because I hate Argento. So I hate the like God power he's been given by people. Yeah. Because he made like three good movies and two okay movies. All right, let's and let's then, list let like, give me give me the list of the three good ones. Okay, so Bird, Deep Red, Tenebrae. Okay. And then Cat Nine Tails and Four Flies could be argued as being good movies. So you're excluding, are you excluding, like, Suspiria and Inferno from this I'm excluding them from the Jalo. Okay, gotcha. Okay, because, like... I agree. Yeah, I just don't think they are. They're different. They're something bigger. They're something that he was planning. It's supernatural. It's, It's what it is. And then he made, like, 37 shit movies. Okay, <laughs> and like if I paid my bills on time for one month, and then spent thirty years not paying my bills at all, do you think my fucking utility people would go? You know what? You paid that bill so damn fucking good that first time. We're gonna let you off the shit. Like, take him off the fucking pestle. That's all I'm saying. Oh my god, that's great. That's a great. That's a great analogy. Yeah, it's an art. Argento has not paid his utility bill in many years. Yeah, dude, his fucking phone bill, like, it's like, who knows? So that's a good segue because if you if you watch the Yellow Fever documentary, one of the problems that I have with it is they do a really good job of introducing the giallo genre. They talk about the history. They talk about the films that started it all, and then they get into Martino and Fulci. And some of these other ones, and they start talking about For the titles. A half a breath. And yeah, and then all of a sudden they start talking about Argento. And and I understand that it's important to bring up Argento because he's he's kind of bookended the genre, right? So you got Bird, which is one of the earliest ones that was the most influential. And you got Deep Red, which is one of the later ones that was very influential. And then you have mm. Tenebrae which comes at a time when no one else was making them, but is also very, very influential. Um, however, they spend... I mean, it, what bothers me is they talked about Deep Red, which deserved to be talked about. They talked about Goblin, 
the music, which yeah. was important. Okay. But then they started talking about Tenebrae, and okay, let's talk about Tenebrae. But then they talked about how they couldn't make Suspiria, or they couldn't make the third version of the Mother's trilogy because nobody wanted it, and Inferno was a box office flop. And then they talked about um, all the stuff that Argento was doing um, after that, as, as, you know, and all these things that was like, well, he put this in his film in order to make a statement and blah, blah, blah. And then, I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed this, but they went into this long tirade about whether Jolly is misogynistic or not. And I'm like, yeah, of course it is. Can we move on? Let's, you know, let's talk about something that, that we all, well, that we don't already as, know. You as know soon I mean? as Argento started saying what a huge fan he is of Freud, I was yeah. like, oh, well, yeah. bring that back. Because then people are going to start looking at you and actually start psychoanalyzing you. And you don't want that. Because if, if I have the understanding of you that I think I do from your films, someone way smarter than me is going to find out what you've done. <laughs> right, now, exactly. Like, yeah, and then I put my daughter in my next sixteen films. Yeah, and I and I and I filmed a scene where she got raped. You know, when she was like sixteen. Like, let's yeah. not get into that. You know what I'm saying? But but regardless of 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 how you feel about Argento and whether or not this needs to be a discussion to, that needs to be had, this was not the time or the place for it in this particular film. We're talking about Giallo. We're not talking oh, about Argento. I thought yeah. you meant podcasts. No, no, no. no, no. I, I mean, in, in that particular agree. film. And what I don't understand is, because when Tenebrae, at least in America, from what I could tell, when Tenebrae was released in America, it wasn't released as a giallo. It was released as a slasher movie. Because that's what right. sure. the coattails that it would have Nobody been. Nobody even like. knew what a giallo was And in the Fangoria 80s. had already, I'm pretty sure Fangoria was already around. Right. If not, would be within the next year. Mm-hmm. And they have already crowned Argento the king of everything. And yeah. if Argento farted funny, they would have a little cover piece for it. Right. You know, like, like he was like the gore master. Like, well, it, it, one, of the, one of the reasons why Argento was put up on a pedestal in the 80s is because of how inaccessible his films were. Yeah, like it, that was part of it. It was like if you were going on some sort of treasure hunt to find Argento, like even if you didn't necessarily think that the films were that good, the fact that they were so hard to find and you finally got yourself a bad copy of them so you could see. Oh them. fuck yeah! Like I said, the thing with Four Flies and Gray Velvet, getting this dubbed copy on VHS from Video Search of Miami just so I could see the fucking thing was more important to me than how good the film was. I mean, um, it was hard as shit for me just to get Suspiria. Yeah. You know, and because um, I remember that by the time Phenomenon came out, everyone had already known who he was. Right. And everyone had been talking about him. And you would go to all the video stores and they were trying to get um, his stuff. But some of them could and some of them couldn't. Um, right. But, like, Inferno, Suspiria, um, I remember those were, like, the ones to pick up, you know? But then, like, when all the demon shit and that stuff started coming out, like, 
he was just a master of horror. If you want to coin that or bring that phrase back from the TV show, like he had surpassed. It's just like all of the old jelly directors were spaghetti Western directors, you know, like, like they kept making jelly films and trying to say, Hey, this is spaghetti Western. Give me your money. You know, it's not a spaghetti Western. It's a fucking jello. And blah, 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 blah. So that's well, kind of... Yeah. By, it, and I don't hate Argento. I just... I no, want no, I don't think you do. But I, mean, I understand for, I understand your disdain with the whole the whole legend that surrounds him. And there's about um, 20 minutes in Deep Red that could be cut out. Let's just all fucking admit it and be happy if with you're, that. Yeah, if you're looking at the uncut version where Mark Daly is... Rummaging through the house for twenty minutes, oh. uh, and it's just boop, 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 and that goblin soundtrack. But this is one of the things that I take umbrage with, with the uh, Yellow Fever um, documentary. Like, we all know. I mean, we don't all know, but people who know the genre know that once you hit the nineteen seventy five seventy six, the genre like trails off in a huge slope. And nobody's doing them anymore because they're doing other things or they're doing TV or they're doing horror or they're doing cannibal or they're doing Western or whatever it is. Right. And so if you know that, if you make a documentary where you cover up to 1975 and you still have 45 minutes of a documentary to cover, the only thing you can talk about is Argento because he's the only one who was still doing Jolly at that point. So they, they should have taken the middle section and expanded it out more. That's my yeah. whole my whole thing. And in but contrast, they, if you look at the other documentary, they come in, they do a very good job of describing the Mondadori covers. And in fact, I think they do a little bit more. Uh, they give you more detail in that other one. And they talk about Argento and Bava, right? And then they talk about Fulci, and then they talk about... Um, but they don't go back to Argento. They never go back to him. Right, which is which I yeah. think is was is what makes that documentary much better. They talk about how great he was. They talk about how influential he was, but they don't return to him later and say, "Okay, what's Argento up to now?" They, they well, just... the other thing, the other argument with Yellow Fever is that it ends with the so. What's next for Argento? Who fucking cares? It's yeah, a right. documentary. This isn't a puff piece. But in the other one, in all the colors, the things that I did like were, um, I think they were talking to Lindsay. I might be wrong. But he was saying how, like, after the whole Poliziotesco and zombie thing happened, um, and TV was pretty much in everyone's houses by that point, the, right. the Jalo moved to television. And right. um, except there wasn't the killings weren't brutal, the sex wasn't there, but it was still the Jalo mystery. And that's right. where a lot of people ended up to continue to make the Jalo. So when you say the Jalo died basically after 82, like according to Lindsay, it was happening and still happening. Like they right. still put these like made for TV movies out that are like really chill and tame and i would honestly i want to know if a lot of those ended up with a lot of the same cast and a lot of the same scores like 
that would be like a whole rabbit trail to go down that would be awesome because like you know like murder she wrote in italy is what's it called lady in giallo is that what they oh, call wow. it <laughs> so like basically you have murder she wrote as a giallo in italy you know well um, and, so and it's that's a, like that's a good point and they talked about that on all the colors. And the other thing they talked about too, real quick before I forget, is they were talking about coming out of the fascist regime. They talked about that a lot. Yeah, like they bringing that up about censorship and stuff. And that's a big important part that I don't think even. And it might have been talked about a lot in the Michael Coven book. I can't remember, um, but I just felt like they made more of a point of it on that documentary yeah yeah well the the one the one guy in the yellow fever documentary that i remember watching who was a screenwriter for um he was definitely a screenwriter for uh gray hair mustache new york ripper but he was also one of the martino ones he was talking about that too he was talking about how the the uh the loss of innocence or something and um, people were were using these films in a way to express, you know, like they didn't uh, stuff that they were never able to do before. They they couldn't they they like the generation before them um, produced masterpieces of art and literature, and they weren't able to do that because you know every generation has to build on the last one, and so yeah. instead instead of trying to be that you know trying to come up with the next masterpiece they just came up with these films that um that basically were rebellion against the establishment and against fascism which is um it's really interesting and i guess they touched on that on both uh, of the documentaries but um i like the whole section in all the colors of giallo where it was edwidge and she's talking and George Hilton's talking, and Sergio Martino's talking, and then they move to uh, Lindsay, and they talk about how eventually, I guess, Lindsay stopped directing films and started writing them, and found some sort of success in that uh, in his latest in his late years. Yeah. Um, but I think you and I were both taken aback by the fact that all of a sudden the documentary is over, and yeah. they, they go to the credits. <laughs> Like it ends very abruptly. Um, yeah. But I think the the biggest takeaway from this is that this obviously, I thought it was shot a lot longer ago than it was, but maybe it wasn't. But um, I think some of it was. Amazing. Well, and I, I need to bring that up too, because I think that the, I was looking, I was looking at Edwidge and going, she's still hot. Um, Barbara Boucher is not hot anymore. But no. <laughs> I would, I would still, I, I wouldn't throw her out of bed because she's Barbara Boucher, but, yeah. um, but Edward still looks great. But I'm pretty sure that that, that interview with, uh, Edwidge is probably from, um, the, the early two thousands. I don't, cause, cause I think You're that breaking my heart right now, dude. Yeah. That, that Just video stop. came out, um, all the colors of Jalo came out in 2019 2019. She amazing, and I was sitting there looking at Barbara Boucher, not looking amazing, and I was <laughs> like, 
what the fuck is happening right, right now. <laughs> she's a vampire, and it's working. Yeah, I, I, it's definitely working. I think, you know, because Edwidge was in something that um, the Eli Roth did. She was in Hostile 2, I think. Yeah. But oh, look, it's Edwidge. That's it. That's all we have to say about it, because now yeah. we're just... Both. We end with we're both thinking about Edward. <laughs> yeah, we're both quiet going. Um, uh, yeah, you're right. Um, so, if you guys have any questions or comments about the episode, please post it down below. Um, and yeah, next anything week we'll else? Do um, something. That you thought of um, from these documentaries? I think we covered them pretty well. Like I said, the the yellow well, fever. I mean, they're both worth. They're both worth watching. Yeah, one of them I can't remember which one was talking about music, and we were gonna say something about Maricone. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. And um, Bruno Nicolai and Riz Ortolani. I think I said that name wrong. That, no, that's that, nothing. That sounds there. right. That sounds right. And. Um, but the thing is, they didn't really talk. They talked about how the music was different and how the music built everything up, but they didn't talk about the actual composers. And that kind of... They, they did. Like, the Yellow Fever right. spent way more time talking about Goblin. And the fact that they didn't even talk about Argento putting the Goblin score on the American version of Dawn of the Dead, to me, that was like the first Fourier... Goblin, I think, with Argento. And I think that's some of their best stuff. Well, but Dawn of the Dead came out um, way after Deep Red came out. I know, but it's still... Was that in production before that, though? No, I, from what I understand, if you look at Romero's cut of Dawn of the Dead... Um, what was I, that, like 77? 79 maybe oh then my my dates are messed up then um that's on me but i just no, seven, like, 78 i'm sorry 78 78 so 70 just, so 75 was deep red 78 was was dawn of the dead and i don't know that, that there were Gento, like push that score like was he like okay give me something like this now give me something like this because if argento had anything to do with the making of that score, that's awesome, and that should have been talked about. I don't know the answer to that at all, and it's probably they probably left that out, even if somebody discussed it, because it wasn't related to Jalo. Um, if Most we're talking about Dawn of the Dead. Fucking Argento makes isn't about Jalo either. <laughs> <laughs> but... but um, I have to go back through because I think there are some things in Dawn of the Dead, the American Romero version, that still have Goblin, but there are a lot of other parts of that movie where the soundtrack is something else. But I have a copy of the Italian or the European cut of Dawn of the Dead, which was called Zombie. Yeah. Just an I, not an IE. And it's 100% Goblin. And Argento's cut of that film as a producer is much shorter than the Romero cut. And I think that he did that on purpose because he wanted the film to move at a faster pace. Yeah. Um, which is interesting because um, you wouldn't, you, you know, 
I guess he just feel, felt that the European audiences weren't ready for a lot of the American kind of specifics that were in Dawn of the Dead. But yeah, that's a really interesting. Um, that particular movie is really interesting when it comes to the collaboration between the two different worlds. You know, um, Argent, Argento producing, um, Romero directing, writing. Um, but yeah, um, as far as Morricone goes, I, I have to admit that um, my r- only real exposure to Ennio Morricone is through Giallo films. And if you look at his entire repertoire, um, he did so much more than that. Well, yeah, because um, my, my first experience with him is the Westerns. Yes, well, because yeah, I think that's his most iconic. Right, those is when I was a kid and shit, and like that music was so different, and like when you would hear it, you would know, like, oh shit, yeah, like, and so like I have a special place for him because of that, but like honestly, the music of especially the golden period of the Jali, the music is what makes those films great to me. And when you look back now, like you don't hear people like 20 year olds today talking about, Oh man, that score and phenomenon or opera, man, that really just like blew me to pieces, man. That really the movie, like you don't have that. Like there was, just something that all clicked, something all came together in such a beautiful way to make something so great. And that will never happen again. It's just one of those things. Like, and, um, I mean, Maricone fucking, I mean, you could say what you want about Bruno Nicolai, but basically everyone's like, Oh, do this to every other fucking composer there was in Italy. And everyone's like, oh, okay. Right. I gotta do, like, some, like, poor man's version of a Maricone theme for this right, movie. Right. Whatever. Yep. And it works, dude. Everything was great. Well, Everything was wonderful. What I've noticed, because when, when I saw the when I saw the news article that Morricone had passed away, I went back to try to... Um, find the most memorable jolly scores that he did and it turns out that the ones that i like the most are actually bruno nicolai and not yeah morricone uh, nicolai seems to have more of an upbeat kind of jazzy mm-hmm. uh feel to his compositions morricone's are a little bit more laid back and of course if you listen to what he did with the argento films it's more like surreal mood mood pieces of of music and not necessarily um compositions that are coherent right so like uh if you listen to the intro to the theme for forbidden photos of a lady above suspicion or the fifth chord um those are morricone um and black belly of the tarantula but a lot of them have um a lot of them start off slow with a female voice kind of just doing 
la 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 kind of thing. One of the things that I thought was interesting going back to the documentaries is that when they talked about the music, um, you know, especially they talk about Morricone was that the music was an integral part of the film, like you said. And when they decided to have scenes with no music whatsoever, they were very stark and they commanded your attention because you were like all of a sudden going, wait a minute, what happened to all the music? I better yeah. watch what's happening. Um, and then by contrast, there are other situations where they've got these beautiful, melodic, harmonious musical passages that they're playing. And on the screen, it's like a dead body and the, yeah. you know, the corners coming and putting the sheet over the head or, you know, and it's just, it's so weird how they decided to, to kind of juxtapose those two things together and instead of making music that was just music that's moody that fits the scene yeah and and you know part of that could be accidental right because we're talking well, I, about like, you know how like all those movies i can't remember if it was can or cad um there was cam, some cam cam like the yep. whole like, yeah if you find a song in here you can use it Whatever. It, was like a, it was like a union. Yeah. Right? yeah. So you just like pick whatever songs you want. Right. And if you needed music, you could put it in there. And also, I think like um, Maritoni and Nikolai both did this where if they were running behind on some stuff, they would just look at other shit that they've already recorded that didn't get taken in other movies and right. put it in. And there were times when we were watching films and the same song would be in multiple movies. Yes. You know, and so it wasn't necessarily Morricone. I think it, it was more. I, I think, like for example, I think Lindsay took uh, some music from one film and used it in another. Yeah. Late, late, later on, that sort of thing. I often wonder, you know, what the backstory is. It's very possible that Morricone or Nicolai just composed these themes, and the film producers were like, "Okay, you know, you got a theme," and Morricone was like, "Okay, here, have this one." But he didn't write it necessarily based on anything related to the story. No. He just wrote a theme and they threw it yeah. in there, you know? Yeah. So it's very possible that that's what happened, Which too. movie did Argento fire him from? Was it Four Flies or was it um, Cat of Nine Tails? Um, Morricone did the music for all three of the first Argento films, but Argento didn't like how he did the music for Four Flies. Because Argento wanted a rock band yeah. in Four Flies. And he wanted Morricone to recreate, apparently, that, that feel. And he wasn't happy with it. So when they went to do Deep Red, the, the legend is that he wanted to, to get Pink Floyd to write the music for Deep Red. Yeah. And apparently they were obviously too popular. And so he got Goblin. Um. The the music Maricone did for Four Flies is still on Four Flies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, all right. But the thing about that film is that the main character is the drummer in a band, and so yeah. there's that there's that diegetic versus non diegetic sound issue with that film where you're listening to him playing the music because he's in a band, and it's the music that gets featured in the film 
as part of the background music. You know, it's that shit opening bit with him playing. Yeah, yeah, playing the like, drums in slow motion. Oh, I, god damn, I fucking hate that shit. <laughs> suggest our next podcast should be about eyeball since we lost the eyeball dude that sucks that was the one with justin on it man was justin on that one yeah oh yeah, yeah. that's right i mean i'll go back and see if i can find it but it's not in the Wayback machine and i kind of want you to watch the high def version i will i've been wanting to not do it but like i figured there would be a reason for me to have to do it sometime so I'll do it. Maybe that's what we focus the volume two on. Rewatching, you know, the reissues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not a bad theme. No, not at all. So let's say uh, ciao, ciao, everybody, and uh, uh, we'll see. We'll ciao, see you next, ciao. We'll see you next time on the Ciao, Ciao podcast. Yay. Yeah, yeah.